Testament, one of the greatest prophets, if not the greatest prophet, was a man named Elijah. He has just really an interesting story. When he first appears in scripture, he's praying that God would stop the rain until he asked God to start it again. And because the land had been filled with idolatry, the king and the queen have been active in, in getting the people of the land to, to worship different idols. And so Elijah prayed, there was no rain for three years. And at the end of those three years, Elijah found the king and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get all of your prophets of Baal, the, uh, the chief god that they worshiped, and all of your prophets of Asherah, who is kind of like Baal's mistress, and meet me up on Mount Carmel, and we're gonna have a showdown. And they met up on Mount Carmel, and people from all over the land turned out. This was kind of like the Super Bowl of the of the uh, 7th century BC or 8th century BC and uh, people turned out and they were 850 of these prophets of the idols and then Elijah was there to serve the Lord. He says, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have a contest. Each of us, you guys and me, will each build an altar. We'll slaughter an animal, put it on the altar and then we'll pray to our God and whichever God sends fire uh, to to burn the animal, that is God, and pretty simple test. And of course, the prophets of Baal, they built their altar, and all morning long, they cried out to Baal and said, Do send fire, send fire, and nothing happened, and Elijah started mocking them. He said, maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe you just have to yell louder, and they start cutting themselves with swords and all kinds of things, but nothing happened. And finally, when they gave up, Elijah built his altar, he put the animal on the altar, and then he did something very unusual, especially considering they, they had just gone through three years of drought. He had the people go get, fill up jars of water. And remember, they're on a mountain, so they probably had to go a pretty long ways. And then he had them, and he poured it over the altar, he had them do it again, poured it over the altar. They, had, they did it a third time, and they were probably getting pretty irritated by now, and uh, poured it over the altar, and Elijah gave a simple prayer to his God and said, send fire, and God sent fire. And the people were crying out, Yahweh, he's God! Yahweh is actually the Old Testament name for God. Usually it's translated Lord in in scripture, but whenever you see the word Lord in the Old Testament with all capital letters, in the Hebrew, that's actually the name Yahweh, God's name. And so they're crying out, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And it's interesting because the name Yahweh in Hebrew, it's usually translated I am. And for God to choose a name that simply means I exist was pretty bold considering there were thousands of other gods. But he's the one who said I exist. And he's the one who answered Elijah's prayer. And all the 850 prophets were killed that day. And Elijah is at an emotional high. He tells Ahab, you better go get something to eat because things are really going to get exciting now. And so he went, then Elijah went up on the mountain. He prayed that God would send rain and God would send rain. And when he saw the rain coming, he told King Ahab to run to the capital city before the roads become impassable. And Elijah was so excited, so emotionally up that he ran on foot and outran Ahab's chariot. Well, when the queen, Queen Jezebel, 
who was the one who was actually running the country at the time, when she heard about this, she sent a messenger to take a message to Elijah and said, you tell him that by this time tomorrow, he's gonna be dead. Elijah got the message, and despite all those things that happened, his emotions hit the bottom, and he was afraid, and he ran away out into the wilderness. Without warning, he was in a spiritual depression. That's what we're gonna talk about today because that's something we all experience at one time or another. And we know people who are going through real spiritual crisis where things are going on in their lives. They're struggling, they're suffering, and God doesn't seem to be responding. It could be major things like dealing with major illness, major debt, being out of job for an extended period of time. It could be family issues. It could be going through divorce or a death in the family. It could be simple things that send us into this plummeting emotional well. It could be things like your favorite TV show was canceled. God, where are you? Or more realistically, your team just lost the Super Bowl. God, what happened? Anything can send us into that place where we wonder, where's God at? Why isn't he doing anything? We're gonna spend our time today in Psalm 22. So if you have Bibles or uh, you can look that up, look it up on your phone, and while you're on your phone, you can check in with Facebook so people can see where you are this morning. Um, And we're gonna go through this psalm. Psalm 22 was written by King David about a 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And he wrote this psalm to deal specifically with the spiritual depression, the sense of spiritual abandonment, wondering where God is, what is he doing, does he even exist? And he wrote this song to help the people of his day and us as well to know what we need to do when this hits us and what we need to say when people that we care about, our friends, our family, when they are in a spiritual crisis. And there's some really good things here. We're going to learn four things, that's all you have to remember uh, at the end. And so let's begin with verse one and two. It begins with some very familiar words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. This guy's in trouble. He's got something going on. David isn't telling us exactly what it was. We'll get a few hints later on in the psalm, but we don't know what it was, and the reason David didn't tell us what this person was struggling with was because he wants us to take whatever it is we're struggling with and identify with what he's going through. Now, you may recognize the words of that first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted this psalm after hanging on the cross for six hours. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was familiar with this psalm. In more ways than we might imagine, as we'll see in a few verses. But this psalm isn't about Jesus. It's about a righteous man, faithful to the Lord, who's going through unexplained difficulties that he can't, he doesn't know why. 
He doesn't know why he's going through it. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Um, David's probably not talking about himself because the hints that we have in this psalm probably, we don't have any record of something like that ever happening to him. So he's created this character, this narrator, for us to identify with and learn from his experiences. And uh, just so that I don't have to say the narrator all the time, we'll just call him Joe. Um, Good name, Joseph, good Jewish name. Um, He's in trouble. The trouble is so bad, he's been calling out to God, and God hasn't been doing anything. God is silent, so silent that he feels like God has abandoned him and he doesn't know why. He's been crying out day and night and God seems to be nowhere to be found. I've experienced that. Sometimes it comes without warning. Just a couple months ago, I went through an, an, an experience where I just was passionately praying for something and it didn't, God didn't seem to answer at all. And I was devastated. Um, later on, I found out he had answered the prayer. It was for someone else. And, but he answered it in ways that I hadn't expected. And I didn't see it at the time. But I, I found myself, is God real? Well, of course he is. I know, I know he's real, so, so I, but I had to work through this issue, and we all do at times, and we have friends who do, who need our comfort and encouragement. Look at verse three through five. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now that sounds like a real nice item of praise, isn't it? But there's something more to this. When you're going through a situation and God doesn't seem to be answering, you don't understand what's going on. And then you hear all these other people saying, here's what God did for me today. Here's what God, how God answered this prayer of mine. Those are great stories, and we need to share our stories, but when you're someone who's wondering why God isn't listening, why he's not paying attention, and you hear that God is doing all these things to these other people, how does that make you feel? Not particularly good. Now, I mentioned this was written somewhere between 950 and 1000 B.C., And the stories of Israel that had been heard mostly came from the period of time right before this, which is what's known as the period of the judges. And in the period of the judges, it's really interesting. This is after Joshua, who led them into the promised land. He had died. And the people started doing what was right in their own eyes. That's the phrase that's used in that book to describe them. They would go their own way, get involved in all the practices of the, of the peoples around them, and start leading just a really a corrupt lifestyle. And then an oppressor would come in. Somebody would come in and conquer them and started treating them cruelly, taking their crops from them, making them pay. And they would cry out to God. And he would answer, he would send them a deliverer. They'd be delivered, they'd praise God, and then they'd fall right back into their old ways again. And they'd get conquered and have to call on God. And these were the stories that this guy was hearing. 
I mean, these are people who really don't deserve God to, to come to their rescue, but he did. He answered their prayers. And time and time again, they would let him down. How does this making this guy feel? He's been leading a righteous life. He's been faithful to God, and God doesn't seem to be responding. It seems like God has forsaken him. We have to remember when we share our stories that sometimes this can have a negative effect on the people around us. Not that we shouldn't be sharing our stories, but as Micah 6.8 says, we should do it humbly. Sometimes when we share what God has done for us, it's like, look at me, God did this miracle in my life. I'm pretty cool. And that's how it comes across, and we have to be careful about that. Because it's not us that was, who were the ones who caused that to happen, it was God. And he did it even though we didn't deserve it. And when we share our stories, we need to let people know about this and be really sensitive to those who are struggling. And of course, when we look at verse six, we see the effect that this had on Joe. He starts out, but I am a worm and not a man. If God answers the prayers of these people who kept turning their backs on him, what does that say about me? I'm nothing, I'm worthless. And he's really in the pit of depression. Look at the next phrase, scorned by men and despised by the people. This is another thing we have to be careful of. When we have people who come to us in great need, and because we have a food pantry here in our church, we meet a lot of people in great need. Some of them have been in need for a long time. It's, it amazes me how many of the people come to our food pantry are believers, and yet things are not going well in their lives. That's why they have to come and get food, and that's not an easy thing to do. But what often happens when somebody with great need comes along, and this is just a human response, it's not meant as a criticism, but sometimes we shy away. Eh, I don't wanna get involved in this. Or we get involved and we pray with them and encourage them and they come back and they're still in the same situation. And we say, eh, enough already, I've, you know, I really can't help here. And without even realize it, realizing it, we reject people. There are some churches that if you walk into that church with a great need, they'll say, no thanks. And the message you get is, maybe I better go someplace else. Well, we're trying to be the kind of church where people with needs can come and receive encouragement and not feel abandoned. Because as we'll see, God doesn't abandon us in those situations, and we're trying to do that. We make mistakes, sometimes they're just people who come along and they're just kind of unlikable. <laughs> and, and, and we find it very uncomfortable to come alongside them. But we're trying to let God teach us how to do exactly that because that's what he wants and that's what people need. But that's what this person was struggling with. The people around him, even though he's lived a righteous life, they've rejected him. Now we're entering into a series of verses that are just absolutely amazing. Because when we read them, it becomes very obvious that it's describing what Jesus 
experienced when he was on the cross. When he quoted this psalm by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't just do that to teach something. It's because this is what he was really feeling. Jesus saw himself in this psalm. It's amazing how 1,000 years before he was born, the words that described what he experienced on the cross were written down. This is how God's spirit works. When David was writing this about this man he, he envisioned who was going through great suffering, when the one who was truly righteous, who truly deserved to have God the Father come alongside him and answer his prayers, when he's going through things even worse than the man, than Joe, the man that this psalm is about, it should teach us a real lesson It should give us an appreciation of what Jesus went through, especially when we understand that he went through all that for us. Let's look at these these verses and then we'll talk about it just a little bit more. Verse seven, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. That's exactly what the people around Jesus were saying when he was hanging on that cross. Verse nine, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. He was chosen by God and God had a plan for his life. He wasn't 21 when God said, oh, I've got a great idea for you. God actually plans out our lives when we're born. And when we belong to him, he, even before we've responded to Christ, God's hand is on our lives. And for those of us who are believers, it's really important to think back to that time in your life before you responded to Christ and look at how God's hand was at work bringing you to that point. It's remarkable when you do that. And yet, God's people, if God's own son went through this crisis that was so bad he felt abandoned by his father, then we shouldn't be surprised when we have that same kind of crisis as well. Now the difference between Jesus and Joe, is that in this psalm, Joe doesn't die. Jesus died. C.S. Lewis had an example. Um, you know, people would, would they try to resist temptation, then they'd fall to the temptation, and they would say, you don't know how hard it was. It was just too hard for me to resist. I, it was too hard for me. And C.S. Lewis pointed out that it's the person who resists to the very end that knows how hard it was. If you gave up somewhere in the process, you don't know how hard it was because it can get worse. Joe had it hard. Jesus had it worse. He suffered to the point of death. Joe survived. Of course, Jesus did that for us. He was dying to take the punishment for all the wrong things we've done. Verse verse 12, 
Or the last part of verse 11, do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. The bulls represent strong people because the bulls of Bashan had a reputation for being prime bulls. Roaring lions, tearing their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. That's what happens when somebody is hung on a cross. They're hanging like this and and the weight of their body is pulling down. The muscles tighten, all the bones come out of joint. It's a terrible suffering. Uh, The Romans, when they decided to make this their primary form of of, uh, enforcing the law, it was just like the uh, Galactic Empire in Star Wars when they decided to create a Death Star to rule their empire by fear. And that's exactly what the Roman government was doing. They, they conceived this extremely terrible, terrible uh, form of punishment to try to control this vast empire of theirs. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. The emotions had gone, the emotional strength was gone. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He's out there exposed to the sun, naked, exposed to the sun, drying out. Dogs have surrounded me. When you see dogs, the term dogs in scripture and it's referring to people, he's referring to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, non-Israelites. And of course we know that he was surrounded by Roman soldiers. A band of evil men has encircled me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's exactly what those Roman soldiers did. Now sometimes people look at these verses and they get so amazed at how Jesus fulfilled this that they forget that this passage was written for us to help us. We tend to be so interested in what this says about Jesus that we forget to see what it's saying about us. In Philippians 1.29 it says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for him. Sometimes people just limit that verse to persecution. But it's, Jesus didn't suffer because of persecution. Yes, people persecuted him but he suffered because of sin in the world. He willingly went to the cross, not because people forced him. He willingly went and suffered all of this because of sin in the world. And because of his death, he was canceling all of that out. When we suffer for Christ, it's not just persecution. Because in this country, I mean, let's face it, we don't really get persecuted much. And when we do, it's usually our own fault for the way that we, we portray Christ and, and the way that we uh, put down other people and, and it's often our fault. There's real persecution in many parts of the world and in those areas the church is thriving uh, because they know what it means to suffer for Christ but we also suffer for Christ because of economic oppression. We suffer for Christ when we see illness 
that, that is tearing people apart and tearing families apart, when we see that people can't get a job, when, when we find ourselves uh, unable to deal with the relationships that, that we have, and all of those problems are caused by sin. That's what Jesus came to set us free from. And that's often why we suffer, and we're sharing Christ's sufferings when we do that. Of course, because Jesus suffered, we know that one day all of this will be gone. Verse 19. David is moving into a new phase of this psalm right now. He's now going to start telling us what we need to do when we find ourselves in a situation where it seems like God isn't responding seems like we're abandoned, we don't understand it. Or somebody around us it feels that way and we desperately want to say something to encourage them. For me, this is a real struggle. When, when I meet people who are going through things, what do I do? I can't find a job, what do I do? I'm, I'm involved in this court case and it's been going on for, for years and, and because of it, I'm losing my home, I'm losing my car, I'm losing my savings, what do I do? And I say, oh, I'll pray with you <laughs> and, and that's good, but I've struggled with knowing what to say. Well, David's going to tell us, verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. He's gone through an extended period of time where he's been praying and praying as hard as he can and God hasn't answered. What does he do here? He prays. This is the first lesson. Take it to the Lord. What often happens when people get into these situations and God doesn't seem to respond, they start entertaining the idea, well, well, maybe God isn't real, or maybe he just doesn't care about me, he's abandoned me because I'm, I'm worthless, and they turn somewhere else. They turn their backs on God, they stop praying, and they turn somewhere else. But where are you gonna turn? Where are you going to find someone who's as powerful as God? Where are you going to find someone who's as wise as God? Where are you going to find someone who loves you as much as God does? Sometimes we feel guilty. If God hasn't answered, maybe I'm not supposed to be praying. Or maybe it's because we're mad at God. Or we're puzzled and we just don't understand. In those situations, take it to the Lord. In Elijah's situation, after he fled to the wilderness because he was afraid that the queen was going to kill him, what did he do? He took it to the Lord, and God responded. Abraham, when God told him he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham is thinking, well, my nephew Lot and his family, they live there. And he starts bargaining with God, thinking maybe God's made a mistake, and he starts bargaining with God. Does God say, stop bargaining with me, I know what I'm doing? No, God was very gentle with him and allowed Abraham to say these things. There are times when King David tells God, there's something here that I don't get. I see your people suffering and struggling and I see the wicked people prospering and everything's going well. 
It didn't cause David to turn away from God, he took it to the Lord. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai and the the people of Israel had made the golden calf and God says, I'm gonna destroy these people. Moses had the guts, some people would think the foolhardiness, to say, wait a minute, God, you can't do that. And he argued with God. And you know what happened? God said, you're right because it turned out to be a test. And God did not criticize Moses in one sense for arguing with him. Jeremiah, um, a man whose whose prophetic ministry was extremely difficult, including his own family, tried to have him assassinated. One time God sent him to the temple uh, to, to give the people a prophecy, and the ruler of the temple came and arrested him, put him in stocks, out in the hot sun with people passing by, yelling names at him, spitting on him, slapping him. The total humiliating experience. And in this situation, Jeremiah said to God, I am not going to do this anymore. I'm fed up. I can't do this anymore. Did God criticize him for that? No. He worked in his life. And Jeremiah said, but then the word of God became like a fire burning in my heart. And I just had to tell people. God awakened his compassion for the people he was serving. Doesn't matter what it is. If you're angry at God, tell him. Have it out with him. Find some place where you can be alone and actually shout at God and tell him exactly what you feel because he knows and he will minister to you when you're honest with him. Take it to the Lord. Don't turn your back because there's nothing there when you wander away from God. There's no help there. So take it to the Lord. Verse 22, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Now, there's nothing here that says God has solved his prob- the problem that Joe was going through. But where is he? He's in the congregation, the assembly of the faithful people. He's engaging in worship. This is the second point. Stay in fellowship and participate in worship. When he's praising God and he's telling people to praise him in order to do that, he has to be looking around and seeing the things that God is doing. When we're stuck in in a spiritual depression, sometimes it's like wearing blinders. That's all we see. But God says, look around, see the other things that I'm doing. In Philippians it says, make your requests known to God with thanksgiving. Because when we have needs and we're calling on God for needs, we need to be thankful and you can't be thankful unless you're looking around to see what God is doing. And of course, one of the common things when people get into struggles like this is they stop going to church. They'll come to church for a little while to see if there's somebody who can help them, but then if it goes on for any length of time, they get discouraged and they stop going to church. The worst possible thing you can do because it's in the company of believers where you're going to receive encouragement. If you're in a group of believers and they're not encouraging you, they're not coming alongside you, they're not helping you bear the burdens, you're probably with the wrong group of believers. You need to find people who will encourage you 
and who won't get tired of you because sometimes God allows us to go through very lengthy times of struggle. First, take it to the Lord. Second, stay in fellowship. Participate in worship. And when you're not going through this kind of struggle, you still need to stay in fellowship. You need to have a practice of attending church, gathering with other believers. Even if you go on vacation, find a church to to spend a little time with on vacation. Because when that crisis hits, you need to have that faithful gathering together with other believers. Because if you haven't established that as a pattern in your life, when that crisis hits, you may just say, forget the whole thing. But it's with the believers that you're going to find praise. You'll hear their stories. You'll see what God is doing in their lives. And they will point out what God is doing in yours. One time I was talking to somebody who'd been going through something for, oh, a long time. I knew this person for, for about a year. And, and she had been going through this struggle for a long time before I got to know her. And, and I was at a loss for words to encourage her. And then this idea just popped into my head. I think it was God's spirit. And I said, well, listen, we've been talking about this for a year, and you're still here. You're still surviving. You still have food to eat. You still have a place to live. Don't say that nothing has happened. Look what God has done. Sure. We would love to have this situation resolved that you're in. But look at what else God is doing. He's preserved you. And that turned out to be just a wonderful thing. She sat there and said, huh, I never thought of that. And it was just a very simple word of encouragement. And it, it worked. Look at verse 24 because he's gathered together with his congregation, because he's worshiping God, look at what he has realized in verse 24. For he, God, has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. It felt like he had been abandoned from God, but he realizes God hasn't abandoned me at all. He's actually at work in my life. He's doing things. He's moving me through this spiritual crisis. All because of the encouragement he he received by gathering together with other faithful people and by worshiping God. It's a tremendous turnaround for him. Verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. This is the third point. Be engaged in ministry and service. Notice what it says. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. This is on Jeopardy last night. A vow is a solemn promise. Um, um, but he had made promises to the Lord before all this happened. He had made certain commitments. And now that he's been undergoing this terrible suffering, some of it at the hands of other people, and God has not yet stepped in to stop it, he says, instead of doing what we often do and saying, I I can't keep those commitments now, I'm, I'm just 
too busy focusing on getting through this crisis. He said, I'm gonna keep my commitments. I'm gonna keep my promises. And it's interesting, particularly for those of us here at 6-8 Church, notice what one of his promises were. The poor will eat and be satisfied. He had made a promise to feed the poor. Um, And that's what we try to do here. And then he made another promise. They who seek the Lord will praise him. Why? His promise was that when people were seeking after the Lord, he would help them find the Lord. Those are his two commitments. When we're struggling with spiritual crises, the worst thing we can do is just focus on that all the time. That's just discouraging. You need to get involved in ministry or service. It it can be ministry here in the church. It can be something outside the church. Whatever it is, you're serving other people. You're focusing on their needs and what you can do, whether it's teach them to to know the Lord, uh, whether it's to, to feed the hungry, or whatever it might be. It's really important. First, take it to the Lord. Second, stay in fellowship and participate in worship. Third, be engaged in ministry or service. It's the best way to get your mind back on healthy activities when you're in the middle of some kind of crisis. And then, verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. The last principle is to always remember it's not about you. It's not about you trying to survive this crisis. God has a plan. There's a reason you're going through what you're going through. And that reason in God's plan is to affect others. When you trust the Lord through these things, God will use what you're doing to affect other people. Maybe you're in that hospital bed because the person in the next bed needs to be encouraged. Maybe you're having financial difficulties so that you can be a model of how to handle these things and how to, how to trust the Lord. Maybe you can gather together with other people who are doing the same things and together you can figure out how to move forward. There's a purpose for what you're going through. And what we rarely think about is the fact that our purpose for this little insignificant life, when you compare it with the uh, all of history, actually can make a real impact. Your life is like dropping a little pebble into a lake. The ripples spread out across the lake. Not only will it impact many other people, but it will impact other generations because what people learn from your faith and from what God does in your life, they will pass that on to their children. It's all part of a plan. And your part is important. Look at what happened to Elijah when he went into his spiritual depression. He took it to the Lord and said, God, I'm tired, I'm worthless, I'm not doing any good, just take my life, 
end it all right here. I'm done. The next thing God tells him is that you're not alone. There's still 8,000 people here that worship me, that have not turned away from me. You need to get together with some of them. We know that he actually did because later, later in his life we see him playing a significant role with schools of prophets. So he was allowing other believers to come into his life and he, include, and he, he mentored a man named Elisha. And then what did God do? God gave him a job. He gave him a ministry. He said, okay, I want you to do this, and I want you to do this, and I want you to do this. You're not done. And then God explained to him that the things that he was supposed to do, what those tasks were supposed to do, were going to have an impact on world history. And they did. Um, he made a tremendous, what he did in carrying out these little tasks uh, was to form one of the great empires of the world, the Assyrian Empire, as well as to, to focus on what was going to happen in Israel for the next few hundred years. Take it to the Lord. Stay in fellowship, participate in worship. Be engaged in ministry or service, and it's not all about you. David created this righteous person who went through suffering, and he in describing his suffering through the power of the Holy Spirit, pointed ahead to one person, Jesus, who went through an incredible suffering, even to death. Jesus uttered three things, the three last things that he said when he was on the cross. One, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he felt totally alone. The next thing Jesus said was into your hands, I commend my spirit. Because he knew that he wasn't alone. And even though things were so dark and so depressing, he trusted God even in death. And the third thing he said was, it is finished. He accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for our salvation, for us to be forgiven, for us to live this life with a purpose, and for us to spend eternity in the presence of God, ruling over his creation. It is finished. Look at the last words of this psalm. For he has done it. The psalm begins with a sense of utter abandonment, but it ends with the same words that Jesus ended with on the cross. God has done it. It's not up to you, it's up to God, and he will. He will come through, he'll take you through the crisis, and he will use it to do great things. That's why sometimes it takes so long, because it's all a matter of timing, and God's timing is perfect. And so now, we need to commit ourselves to these things. When we go into spiritual crisis, if you're carrying a heavy load today, these are the four things you need to do to help carry you through. But we also need to commit ourselves to helping others who go through their own crisis. We need to bear burdens with people. We need to be willing to come alongside them and when they wanna know, what do I do? We may not have, I'm amazed at some people who seem to have at their fingertips access to resources that can help and that's a real gift from God for those of you 
who just seem to know where to find help for different things. I don't have that sense, and I, I suspect a number of you feel helpless in those situations. But now we've gotten things that we can tell people to encourage them to make sure that their faith in the Lord can grow and that God can use the crisis that they're going through. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. Because it is. God's plan is solid. He's done everything that needs to be done for that to succeed. We just need to trust him. Let's pray. My Lord, I just thank you so much that even though in those times when we feel abandoned, when we feel worthless, we're not abandoned and we're not worthless because your son died for us. He died for me. He found me valuable enough to be, because you found me valuable enough to be part of your plan. And I thank you. Help us to, to grow and to understand. And for those who are in crisis here today who are really carrying heavy burdens, uh, let them know that they can still trust you, that you haven't abandoned him. Bring people around them. Bring people to pray with them, to encourage them. Uh, and help us now as we go into the, the rest of our service that we can just worship you for the incredible things that you do for us and for the fact that you are always with us and your hand is always on what's going on in our lives. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.